This program is brought to you by Bible Way Media, under the oversight of the elders of the Chipman Road Congregation in Lee Summit, Missouri. I want to remind us, as we look at John chapter 18 this morning, that Christ, you know, what it means that when Christ took our place on the cross, what it means for us, and what it means for really for all mankind. Probably many people who we come in contact understand the basic idea behind Christ coming to the earth and dying on the cross. When I mean the very basic, they mean that they understand he did that. Maybe they don't quite understand the power behind it and what those things mean for us and the requirements for us today uh, based upon those things he has done for us. I want to begin to think about this idea of taking uh, the Lord taking our place. You'll notice there on the screen that empty chair. You know, I think about how, you know, if you're called before someone and you have charges against you, once you, you may think sometimes, I wish it was someone else who was going to be called instead of me, right? You think about that with sin and the price of sin, Christ is the one who took the seat for us, so to speak, right? He's the one that took the, the, the place of us. You know, I often think about, when I think about what Christ has done for us, all of us know who, probably who Superman is, and one of the most well-known images or, or depiction of him is, is, is him standing between an innocent person and a violent person and protecting them from harm and bullets just bouncing off of him, right? That's the old school Superman, right? And we find that the same idea, really, that's what Christ has done for us. The price of sin is there, but he steps in between us and the heavy price of sin. But it does come with requirements. We think about we look at uh, here. We'll look at first this idea of what it means to, as we think about this word ransom. If you look at First Timothy chapter two and verses five and six, the Bible says, "For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time." We think about this idea. A mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself, not notice, a ransom for all. You think about that word, that's a little word with a lot of people behind it, isn't it? All, that means for all mankind. Think about how many people you've come in contact with throughout your life. Think about maybe the number of friends you have on Facebook, which I really never pay much attention to those kinds of things, but sometimes you have, you have thousands and thousands of friends, right? Think about how many thousands and thousands and millions upon millions, perhaps billions of people who have lived throughout history. And the Bible tells us that Christ gave himself for how many? The Bible says for all, right? He gave himself a ransom for all to be testified at any time. The word ransom is the idea that what is given in exchange for another as a price of his redemption. The price of his redemption. You know, there's a lot of words for us to think about very carefully. Ransom is one, but price is another. You know, everything we do in life has a price behind it, doesn't it? If we want to do anything, there comes a, a price to it. If we want to become more knowledgeable, there is a price to it. It may be just our time. It may be financial. If we want to travel the world or go on a vacation, it takes a cost. But friends, sin, in order for it to be removed from our lives, 
It comes at a cost. And we are reminded here in First Timothy that Christ has gave himself a ransom for all. That is, he has given himself in exchange as the price for our redemption. He has paid that price. You know, Christ went down his life for all mankind. And we think about what that means for us. Let's go, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 10. And no, not every verse is going to be on the screen today. Hebrews chapter 10. We look at Hebrews chapter 10. And let's look together here, verses 1 through 9. And we'll notice in Hebrews chapter 10, the sins of men have been forgiven in the Old Testament, but the sacrifices and the blood have to continue to flow year after year after year. Look at Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 9 here. He says, The law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, Make the comers thereunto perfect, for then would, would they not have ceased to be offered, because, the, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then he said, Lo, I come to, to, to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. And as you look at verse 11 there, we'll come back to verse 10 in a second. He says, And every, every priest sinneth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Notice that last part of verse 11. Which can never take away sins. They were forgiven, but remittance, as we sometimes refer to it as, was not going to take place until Christ shed his blood on the cross. You think about that idea there in verse 11, which shall never take away sins. We go back now to Hebrews chapter 10, we see that Christ had to come to save mankind. Hebrews 10, this time looking at verse 10, he says here, uh, by, by the which will we, will we uh, are sanctified, to the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, verse 12, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. How many times did Christ have to go to the cross? Just once. There was not a yearly remembrance. Now today, as we are commanded, we remember the sacrifice of Christ on the cross every week. He's not sacrificed on the cross every week. But we remember what he has done for us. Because when Christ laid down his life, he only had to do it once. When he laid down his life, he did it for all mankind. We think about this as you think about this price that was paid. How much are we willing to pay for things today? You ever gone to an auction? I'm not much, much in auctions, but sometimes in television shows, you have people depicted auctions buying things for various reasons, their home or whatever it is. And one I watched recently was a car auction. The man was auctioning off a lot of things out of his property. 
all these older cars, and people, some are building, you know, one car I think went for $25, other went for 60, 70,000. If you think about how much we'll give for things, how much will we give to save our souls, to remove the sin from our lives? Is there a price tag too high? I'm sure I'm not the only one that's ever walked into the store looking at various things. You can look at a price tag, you put it right back down, you walk away. But you think about sin, you think about what Christ has done for us. Did he know the heavy price tag when he came to the earth? Bible tells us he did. We find him in the Garden of Gethsemane where he is praying. The Bible tells us he's praying so much his sweat becomes like drops of blood. And the disciples outside are waiting for him as he prays. They're falling asleep, and Christ is in the Garden praying in great distress. You remember some of the words of those of that prayer when he tells on one occasion he says, "If it's possible, it was cut past from me." Why do you think he says that? Is physical death ever really regarded as a as a great, loving, you know, pleasant physical experience? No. Oftentimes it's painful, isn't it? Now you think about, well, how could Christ say that? I think for just a moment, what would Christ endure before he ever went to the cross? He would endure a trial which was a joke from beginning to end. He would be mocked with words constantly. And then he'd be beaten. Then he'd be taken to be uh, scourged, which is a short word for saying they beat him within an inch of his life using tools and weapons, whatever they really wanted to. They beat him profusely. So weak that Simon of Cyrene had to carry his cross to the place where they would finally put him to death. Think about that for a second. You're so weak, you can't carry the tool they're going to finish you off on. That's what, that's what is happening. And so they lead him away, Simon carrying the, the cross for him to the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, a lovely place, right? And then they place him on the cross, securing him with nails through his wrists, through his feet, and wait and watch for him to die. Why do you think he said it is possible this got to pass for me? Because it wasn't going to be a pleasant experience. We know that despite Christ knowing the full price tag, we, that was really just looking at the physical side of it, wasn't it? What do you think it felt like when the earth went dark? The Bible tells us it went dark for those that period of time, right? As he carried the weight of sins of all mankind, past, present, and those that may come in the future. Is it any wonder he said what he did in the garden? But isn't it equally as powerful that he still walked right on in to that brutal event that was going to take place? Knowing full well it's going to happen. You ever had an event come up and you just dread it? And you start postponing it, you call, you reschedule an appointment because you don't want to go? Maybe there's a family event coming up and you think, I hope I get sick so I don't have to go to that. You know, for Christ, there was no rescheduling. There was no sick day. He was going. And he knew long before he was going. He knew when the Pharisees were, were doubting him and questioning everything he said that he was going. He knew why the Jews mocked him and accused him of blasphemy that he was going to go to the cross and yes for them as well. And the list goes on and on, doesn't it? The various times he fed thousands of people and raised 
son of the dead. He knew he was still going to go to the cross for some of those same people. So we think about that Christ day. Christ knew all along what the price was going to be. Look at Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah 53 rather, looking at verse 5. What did Christ do for us? Verse 5 says, but he, a reference to Christ, you know, Isaiah 53, you can say it's all about Christ, or you can say it's all about us. I think that's, it's not wrong to say either one. Because it's about what Christ is doing for us. Today, we can say it's what Christ has done for us. He says in verse 5, but he was wounded for whose transgressions? Not for his. Because of ours. He was bruised for whose iniquities? Ours. The chastisement for whose peace was upon him? Ours. And with his stripes we are healed. What if you took the word, oh, you are out, and put your name in? Whose sins, whose iniquities, whose transgressions did he die for? <clears throat> whose chastisement for peace did he lay upon himself? Yours and mine, right? We look at verse 5, the latter part of verse 5, it says, and, and with his stripes, who is healed? All of us. All of us. He, he endured these things for us. Think about this. He endured uh, being wounded. He endured being bruised. He endured being chastised. He endured stripes. Some reference that as being discouraging. And what did these things accomplish for mankind. Look at verse 11 in the same chapter. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. He shall see what has been done on behalf of all of us, right? And shall be what? Shall be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. You think about that word justify. We talk about that many times. It means we are made as if we made just as if we have never sinned, right? Justified. He will justify many. He shall, why? And how does he do that? Because he shall bear their iniquities. What if Christ didn't bear our iniquities? What if verse 5, he did not, he was not wounded for our transgressions? What if he was not? Bruised were not for our iniquities. When we did not lay the chastisement for our peace upon him, then we would not be healed by his stripes, would we? Verse 5. See, what Christ did for us, what God allowed his son or caused his son to do for us, it all reckoned all everything we have, everything spiritually speaking and Promise in Ephesians 1, every blessing we have is from God. And it's because God allowed his son to, or caused his son to do this, and Christ willingly did so, that we had the hope of heaven. Because if he did not, we would have nothing waiting for us when this life came to a close, would we? There would be nothing left. There would not be a hope of heaven for us if Christ did not go to the cross. So when he went to the cross, he literally changed, you might say, the eternal destiny for all mankind, because now mankind has a chance to have heaven as their home. You know, Christ went to the cross for mankind. He didn't go to the cross for himself, did he? We can take him to the cross to be obedient, that also is true. But he went to the cross for mankind. Christ was to die 
for all mankind. Go with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Verses 14 through 17. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, and gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son in the world to condemn the world, but, the, but that the world through him might be saved. What does that remind us of? It sounds a lot like Isaiah, doesn't it? That he is what? He loved the world so much, he made a way for us to have heaven as our home. Look at verse 15. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. If we put our obedient faith in Christ and follow him loyally, Revelation 2 and verse 10, faithful to death, we will have eternal life. Verse 16, here's why. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that is a unique, one of a kind Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But if we do not put that obedient faith in Christ, instead we put our faith in the world, or in the ideas, or the concepts, or the theories, or whatever you want to call it, of men, you know, those things are not found in the Bible for a reason, because they're not from God. The only way we get to heaven is by following the way that God has laid out for us. You think about it for a second, how many times over the years people try to predict the return of Christ? Obviously, they were never right, were they? Not even close, obviously. Different people have predicted using various calendars. They have talked about, you hear about the Mayans, and on and on and on. The Mayans have nothing to do with Christ's return. They have nothing to do with the Bible and morality about those types of things. But yet, that's where some people want to go back to. Look at verse 17 in John chapter 3. For God sent not his Son in the world to condemn the world. You know why that is? Because the world will be condemned whether he condemned it or not, because the world was in sin. He didn't come to condemn the world. The world was already condemned because we're living in sin, right? Verse 17, But that the world through him might be saved. Might be saved. You know, when, when we see a, a rotten piece of food, we don't have to look at it and say, Well, let's make sure it's rotten, do we? We know just by looking at it. The Lord knew that the world was condemned. He didn't come to condemn it. He came to save it. Condemning it would be much easier, wouldn't it? But saving it, far more difficult. We look at verse 17 there. It says that the world through him might be saved. Which tells us there's a possibility to be saved. There's also the possibility to won't be saved. Might means not everyone goes to heaven. Not everyone goes to heaven. I'm sure I'm not the only one who sit through funerals and hear people talk about someone going to heaven. There's sometimes, maybe I'm going to become only one who have sit through a funeral knowing who it is who's up there, who, who was in that casket, knowing them very well, knowing that what this person was saying in the up here was not in agreement with, what, with the life of the person who was, who was laying right there. Because we can preach people to heaven, it doesn't mean they're actually going there. One brother told me years ago when I was at another location, 
And uh, we were talking about funerals and things, and I told him, you know, I've only done, a, that's only done a few. And I told him, you know, I'm very careful how I word things. And he says, you know, I've never, let's say, flat out someone's going to heaven. And he said, the reason for that is because we don't know what they're doing behind closed doors. He wasn't trying to be rude or uncaring. He was just saying, we want them to go to heaven, don't we? We pray that they have been faithful to God. But who knows who, who actually knows who's going to heaven? God does. Look at verse 17. That the world through him might be saved. We have hope through God. We have hope from what we find in God's word. Let's go now, if you will, to John chapter 18, a portion of our main text this morning. John chapter 18, looking at verse 39 and verse 40. It says, But ye have a custom. Now this is this is when Christ is at the trial there with Pilate, Pilate being Pilate gets a lot of things kind of pile on him sometimes. Sometimes it's safe. You think he deserves it sometimes. I'm not so sure. But we have to realize that Christ was prophesied to go to the cross. No matter what events transpired at the trial, Christ was going to go to the cross. Look at verse 39. But ye have a custom that I should release unto you at one at the Passover. Will, will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? This means Pilate speaking, saying, There's a custom that Passover would release somebody. What if I just release the king of the Jews, right? Verse 40. Then they cried, then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Now if you look at Luke's account, he goes a little bit more about it. We'll talk about it here in a moment. Matthew, as we'll talk about later, also talks about Barabbas being one that actually was a rebel and was in prison for a lot of good reasons. But let's look, if you will, with me. Let's pause here for a second. Let's go and look at Luke chapter uh, chapter 23. This won't be on the screen. Luke chapter 23. In Luke chapter 23, let's begin looking here at verse 13. <laughs> Luke 23, and look, beginning here in verse, uh, verse 13. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and rulers of the people, said to them, Ye have brought this man to me as one that perverted, uh, perverted the people. And behold, I have, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof where, uh, ye accuse him of. Ye, ye accuse him. No, nor yet cared, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for of necessity he must be released, he must be, he must release one of them at the feast. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man, and re release unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city, and for murder was cast into prison. Why was Pilate, or why was Barnabas there? Because he actually deserved to be there. Right? He was causing uproar. He had, the Bible says he was a murderer. John says he also was a robber. He was not a good person, was he? But who did they decide to exchange in place in order to keep Christ there? Because Pilate's trying to get him released using this, this custom to do so. And what did they say? No, keep Christ there. Give us this known murderer. Robber and this person who's guilty really of just stirring up the city, right? Release him to us. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? Release a person we all know has been is guilty of murder. Release a person we know is a robber. Release this crazy guy who is a known 
prime offender, but keep Christ there. We'll come back to that more in a moment. And let's look at some lessons for us today. We want to realize that the innocent is often put in place of the guilty, right? Isn't that what Christ did for us, being the innocent, went to the place of the guilty? You know, in all reality, Barabbas was one that you could say, perhaps Barabbas is the first one who was innocent who was truly let go because of Christ. But Barabbas was not someone who was to be let go. But nonetheless, Christ took his place and Barabbas was free. The first one, or perhaps millions and millions later, he would be uh, spared because of Christ. Now let's look at some things for us today. We want to notice, first of all, that the price of sin has not changed. The price of sin has not changed. You know, there are some today who sadly kind of want to downplay sin as if some things are just, well, don't worry about that. You know, over the last year, I've heard that a lot from a lot of surprising people. It's not that big of a deal. Well, isn't what they did sin? Well, technically, and what are we talking about? Right? I mean, sin either separates us from God or it doesn't. And we think about this idea, you look at Proverbs chapter 10, verse 16, the labor of the righteous tendeth to life, the fruit of the wicked to sin, the fruit of the wicked to sin. You know, we think about this idea of being wicked, we, we recognize there are those who just live in a lifestyle of sin. We also realize that sometimes we sin, and we don't take care of it, we're going to be cast away too on the judgment day. You know, it doesn't take a lifestyle of sin to condemn a person. All it takes is a sin that we say, I don't see the problem with it, and it remains on our account. Because any, any sin can condemn us. You know, Isaiah 59 reminds us that your sin has separated you from your God, right? Your sin. And so it's not just a, this lifestyle of sin that will separate us from God, as it certainly will, but a sin that we will do not take care of will be held against us. Look at Romans 6 and verse 23. He reminds us here for the wages of sin, the cost of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. You sin, you die, but because of what Christ has done for us, He made, has made a way for us to avoid death because He has shed His blood on the cross for us. The question is, how, do we, how are we able to obtain and to enjoy what Christ has done for us? See, it's no longer a question of how do we, you know, Christ died for us, but now is how do we make sure that we are able to take a part of the blessing or be a part of the blessing what Christ has done for us? You know, the Bible reminds us, Christ tells about also other, how, how many on that day will come to him saying, Lord, Lord, have we not done? He talks about many things that they would say. He would tell them, depart from me, if I never knew you, right? You workers of iniquity. There in Matthew. But those who have obeyed the words of God, who have followed the words of God, he says, what? Enter the joy of the Lord, right? Which that illustration alone tells us that not everybody gets to go to heaven. So the question how it has to be, how do we have our sins forgiven and know that we get to go to heaven? You know, in Acts chapter 2, that exact question, almost word for word, is asked, isn't it? Look at Acts chapter 2 for just a moment. In Acts 2, we have the day of Pentecost of Peter. You know, we find in Acts 2, uh, 
The Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles there in Acts 2, verse 1 and following. And then Peter begins his sermon shortly after that because they're saying, they think these men are drunk because they're speaking in different languages. But they all understood, which means it was not gibber jabber, right? They hearing these men speak in languages and they can understand what they were saying. So it wasn't just getting up there and kind of, well, no, that's not speaking in tongues, is it? For some today, that's what it is. If you want to see that stuff on television, find some denominational channel, and sometimes, sometime today, you have someone up there who's pretending to do that. But that's what the Bible says it is. Because when they spoke, they had to be understood, or Paul tells us that they could be understood or be translated, they had to keep their mouth shut. Now we get to Acts 2, and we find here looking at Acts 2, looking at verse 36. Let's pick up here in Acts 2, verse 36. Therefore, this is the conclusion of Peter's sermon. That all the house of Israel know surely that God hath made it, that same Jesus, whom he had crucified, both Lord and Christ. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What does that mean? What do we do now? Peter had just gave them a short and a very powerful sermon about who it was they just took part in putting on the cross. And so they were cut their heart, right? Which means it, it hit them home. And they're asking, what do we do now? Verse 37, right? And what does Peter say in verse 38? Notice what he says, and notice what he does not say. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of, of sins. What does that mean? For the remission of sins. Repent, which means what? You turn from your sins, you confess those things to God, you turn from those things, and you're baptized for what purpose? Peter says, for the remission of your sins, right? So how do we come in contact with the blood of Christ? We do it when we obey the gospel, which includes, as Peter says, baptism. Look with me at Romans chapter 6. Here the Apostle Paul, we won't just go by the words Peter, uh, Peter, let's go to the Apostle Paul, another inspired man of God. Romans chapter 6. In verse 1, he says here, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Romans 6 and verse 1. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism to death, that like as Christ is raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. What does that mean? You put on Christ at baptism. You're into the body of Christ at baptism. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. You may hear verse 26, but we want to make sure we include the context. So we're going to put together verse 26 and 27. Galatians 3 verse 26 and 27 says... For ye are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. What does that mean? Was well, the same person speaking as it was back in Romans, wasn't it? It's Paul. That you put on Christ at baptism. Your sins are washed away, according to Peter, at baptism. You know, baptism isn't the only step, though, is it? We have to hear the word of God is what we're doing right now. We're hearing 
at least portions of the Word of God. And based upon what we hear, we then may in turn believe that Christ is the Son of God. Because before we can be baptized, certain things have to happen. We have to hear them, we have to believe. You can obey what you haven't heard. So you hear the Word of God and you believe that Christ is the Son of God. You repent of your sins, Acts 2, you confess those things. We know that's something we find numerous times in the Bible. We confess those things as well. James tells us that. And what? We are then baptized into Christ. We confess only our sins. We repent, but we confess that Christ is the Son of God. Then we are baptized into Christ. As we saw in Acts, Romans, Galatians. You go through the book of Acts, you'll find Acts of Conversion over and over and over again. And they all include the same exact thing. Think about this for a second. How many times does the Bible just say something for it to be so? Just once. And we find the Bible tells us we have to do more than once. We are baptized and then we remain faithful to God. John 14, 15 tells us, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? Sin must be dealt with. Look with me at Proverbs 28, verse 13. He says, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper. The idea that he who refuses, he just kind of ignores it, brushes it off, he shall not prosper. But whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. The person who could be what? Who turns them in? It's really describing repentance, isn't it? Confesseth and forsaketh them, which means you confess them, you turn away from them. You turn away from them. It's not a phrase original to me. It's really applied to a lot of, used by a lot of older preachers. I've heard talk about the idea of turn or burn. That's true, isn't it? You turn from your sins, or as Christ tells us in Luke, repent or perish, right? That's what it boils down to. And so we need to ask ourselves in life, how badly do we want to go to heaven? But also, how bad do we want to avoid a place called hell? A place, the Bible tells us, the flame is not quenched, the worm dieth not, which means nothing ever ends. We will be good to remember that we all will have eternal life. The question is, where do we spend it? You know, sin has a solution. You go back to Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, And looking there, verses 14 through 18 of Hebrews chapter 10. This won't be on the screen. Hebrews 10, 14 through 18 says, For by one, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he said, for after that, for after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds. I'll and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of sin, where, where, now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Meaning when Christ died for our sins on the cross, and we obey the gospel, thereby we get to enjoy the blessing of Him doing that for us. Our sins are now forgiven and remitted. Because he has washed those things away. You know, the book of Revelation talks about how he refers to those who are in the body of Christ, to those who have washed themselves in the blood of the Lamb, made themselves white as snow. 
There's only one way you can do that, and that's through baptism, which is a part of obeying the gospel, isn't it? You know, sin can only be solved with God's solution. Look at Hebrews 9 and verse 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall, be, shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation, which means we returns a second time. It'll be for what? To bring us to judgment, and the faithful will go home with God and with Christ for all eternity. The faithful will do that. Sin can only be solved with God's solution. You know, we have the ability to have our sins forgiven if we bring the right fruit, the right attitude with us. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptizer says this, Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance, or fruits worthy of repentance, being shown by your actions that you have turned from those things. Show that you have turned. <coughs> Let's close by looking at, or begin to close at least, by looking at Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 27. In Matthew 27, beginning in verse 15, the Bible says, Now the feast the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, or Jesus who is called Christ. For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. Isn't it interesting how some people pick up on some things? Pilate wasn't the brightest bulb in the box. He wasn't really ignorant, wasn't he? While he was sitting on the judgment seat, verse 19, <clears throat> while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Reference to Christ. Which means she has some kind of dream concerning him. She tell him, Pilate, you don't have anything to do with him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. I find it interesting that it's not just kill Jesus and that his account, but it's destroy him. I think about it this way. They don't want you to kill Christ. They want to destroy everything he stood for. What did they do after his death and resurrection? They come after the apostles. They come after his disciples. That's when we have things and recordings about how they died because they didn't stop persecuting the faithful. They wanted to destroy Christ and everything he stood for. Of course, they failed in doing so. We find as we continue reading here, verse 21, the governor answered and said to him, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. The governor said, Then the governor said, Why, what evil has he done? Some commentators say the reason he asked that question because it was viewed to be the worst possible way to have a person put to death was having him crucified. It wasn't like beheading where it's just, you're done. You hung and you hang there until your life gave out, or as we find it, look at the account. The soldiers came around and started breaking your legs. You couldn't even lift yourself up to breathe anymore. It's a horrible way to die. And so that's why we find, that's by me, believe why the question is asked here, why, what evil has he done? But he cried out all the more, saying, let him be crucified. And Pilate saw that he could not rebel at all. There were they tumult, or a riot, 
was rising. He took water and washed his hands and pulled both to it, saying, I'm innocent by the blood of this just person. You see to it. Well, he wasn't exactly innocent, but he wouldn't have nothing to do with it. Either. And all the people answered, notice this. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. What a horrible thing to say, isn't it? Let his blood be on us and on our children. Reminds us of the kind of people you're dealing with, isn't it? Look at verse 26. And he released Barabbas to them. And we had scourged Jesus, a short word used to mean they beat him with an inch of his life, using various tools and weapons. Then he delivered him to be crucified. Now, we find here, if you look at the end of this reading, whose place is Christ taking? Was it more than just Barabbas? Yeah. In all reality, we could remove Barabbas' name and put our name in there, couldn't we? We may not be a thief or a robber or whatever it may be, but know that we have sin that is waiting for us and we don't deal with it. So Christ died for more than just Barabbas. He went to the cross to the place of more than just him. In our song books, and just bear with me, I want to read just one verse from this. But number three in our song book is called That Cross. I want to just read one verse. It says here, At last and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Will he devote that sacred, that sacred head to such a worm as I? For such a worm as I. That's a graphic way of talking about sinners, isn't it? That sacred head. Christ, who was without sin, without blemish, without spot, died for all of us. So the question now doesn't come to Christ. The question comes to us. What do we do based upon what Christ has done for us? Because some actions demand a response, don't they? Based on the actions of Christ on our behalf, what is our response going to be? We haven't obeyed the gospel. Maybe we won't want you to do so. If you have obeyed the gospel, maybe you're just not living as you should. Maybe you have things you're struggling to overcome, whatever it may be. Maybe you want to straighten those things out. 